Hello and welcome to Pause Pop, positively pop culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm K.W. Taylor. And I'm Carrie Gessner. And this week we're talking about the HBO documentary The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, the series The Undoing, and the Lovecraft Investigations podcast. That's right. And as excited as we are to talk about that stuff, it's actually taking us a few days to schedule. Well, we scheduled the recording and then we postponed it a few times because the world's a little bit topsy-turvy right now. And we had a little bit of a hard time getting getting pumped, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Because we try to be really like we're talking about stuff we love and we're excited about it. And it's kind of hard to like tear yourself away from the news or doom scrolling or social media or news media when it's scary if everything's going to fall apart. But Mm -hmm. we've managed through a whole pandemic that is still going on. (laughs) Yeah, it's not over yet. (laughs) It's not over yet. And I think we will make it through this moment as well. I hope so too. Yeah. So hopefully the next, you know, however many minutes this ends up being will be a little respite for our listeners. Just hearing us talk about TV and podcasts and historical mysteries today. So Yes. Take a break, yes. relax, and listen to our soothing voices. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that when everything went down, I had gone to go work out. I had been working in my home office all day. I went to go work out. I was gone for like 60 to 75 minutes, something like that. I come back and it's like, oh, no, you're not getting anything else done today <laughs> because your phone is blowing up and everything's mm-hmm. crazy. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so anyway, maybe when you come back after listening to this, hopefully that won't be the case for <laughs> you, <laughs> dear <Hopefully> listener. <laughs> but speaking of podcasts and listening to podcasts, mm-hmm. you've been listening to more of a podcast that I listen to too, but I'm so far behind. So you are you're caught up. I am you're caught up though. Yeah, yes. I have one thing. The one thing I can hold over your head. <laughs> <laughs> So the Lovecraft Investigations podcast is one of my favorites. We've talked about it before. It recently became rebranded as that. The first season was The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, which we both listened to, talked about a long time ago. And then the second season was The Whisper in Darkness, which I talked about Mm -hmm. a little while ago. And Mm -hmm. recently, I think it was November or December, they released the third and final season called The Shadow Over Innsmouth. So I'm going to try not to spoil anything because they really build off each other. So you can't listen to them separately. Uh And I just don't want to give anything away. (laughs) But the premise is that there is a podcast and podcasters named Matthew Haywood, played by Barnaby Kay, and Kennedy Fisher, played by Jana Carpenter. And they started out this case looking into how Charles Dexter Ward escape from a locked room in a a mental institution. And in season two, it expanded into this investigation of UFO sighting in England in the 1980s. And season three expands it even more. So everything sort of connects together and it gets a little bit out there and wild. (laughs) (laughs) So season three starts out with Matthew going to Mosul, Iraq. Because at the end of season two, there were reports that Kennedy was spotted there and she was spotted in the company of some people they had been keeping tabs on because they were evil. (laughs) (laughs) And he's just like, what the heck is that about? Because Kennedy has been in America that whole time. So he goes to figure out what's going on there. 
And Kennedy goes to Innsmouth, which is on the coast, the New England coast somewhere, to investigate her family history because her na- her family's name keeps kind of coming up in these stories that they're investigating. So they start off separately going down these two different tracks that intersect and come together in different ways. And one of the things, this has come up a lot in, in fiction and in talking with our friends about it, how fiction handles Mm COVID-19 and whether you like how they handle it or you don't like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Oh, I should say the series is created and written by Julian Simpson. So season two came out like the end of 2019. And then probably while he was writing season three, COVID happened. And he wrote COVID into season three. Mm-hmm. Because it's supposed to be like a news investigation. Like mm-hmm. it's it's fictional, but it's a it's a mockumentary in a way, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's it's supposed to be like real time, not real time, but, you know, relatively real time. And I totally understand why they included COVID-19 mm-hmm. <laughs> and like countries were locking down and they were trying to fly all over the place and follow leads. And at a couple points, like no one's allowed to go anywhere. So Matthew's mysterious friend who has a fake name in the show because he works for some super secret thing and you, they can't reveal his name, mm-hmm. gets him on like, I forget what they call it, a black plane or something, blacklist plane. Oh, yeah, so he's like moving about secretly. And like, there's this moment when Matthew is with someone he runs into and they have to lock down in France together. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's a very tense situation. And then when they do some traveling outside of that, Matthew's always like, by the way, we followed COVID 19 protocols and we quarantined. And I'm like, that's great. That's great, buddy. <laughs> but fiction is my escapism (laughs) yeah so a little bit i was i'm not disappointed in that but it just in the grand scheme of things i think i prefer less of an emphasis on the current pandemic you know Mm -hmm. yeah but i do want to address that and i think it's responsible of them to address it and make sure that their characters are their fictional characters are following real life guidelines (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) so okay so matthew and kennedy are going off on these two different quests i guess mm-hmm. and they both run into something i can't remember the name of it but it's basically a cult of a fish man cool like you do like yep. you do yep. yeah <laughs> <laughs> and they both run in, into it separately and they're like oh that's weird <laughs> <laughs> and the cult is always associated with a village that has essentially been wiped from history so what they start mm-hmm. to find out is that all of these Villages that have disappeared are interrelated, and they tie into the idea of Pleasant Green, which has come up in previous seasons, and we haven't really found out exactly what it's about. And it's all related to the great baddie named Ipkuaya, mm-hmm. and this cult that has tried to, that is trying to bring Ipkuaya back to this realm or something. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's very kooky. But not in, like it, it takes itself seriously, which mm-hmm. I enjoy. And well, we see a couple returning characters who I really like. There's Eleanor Peck, the very skeptical professor 
who they often rely on to get information about these cults and stuff. And she's played by Nicola Walker, who honestly, when I was looking at this up today, I was like, oh, these people are like actual legit actors (laughs) (laughs) that you could see in, you know, BBC stuff, Uh, (laughs) which I didn't really realize before. I wasn't super familiar with her name, but I totally recognize her face and I've seen her in some things. And there's Parker, who has no first name and is very mysterious. She's from the Department of Works, which is a mysterious entity that I think it popped up in season two. Mm -hmm. Those characters come back and they're very interesting and a lot of fun. And like I said, it is the last season. I know, which is really kind of sad because... (sighs) There is a definitive ending, but there is mm-hmm. also sort of a cliffhanger, which oh. upset me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, I really, really enjoy it. It's something that I like to binge. I don't like to listen to one episode here and then wait a week and listen to the next one. I binge it all together. And mm-hmm. I will say that while driving, I think it was episode four. There are eight episodes in the season. Episode four, the end of it, I like shouted out loud in my car (laughs) because I was so upset at what happened. (laughs) So yeah, it's a lot of fun. I've come to really like the characters a lot. I'm a little bit sad that it's the end, but because everything was so complicated and tied together and it's been, you know, two years since the first season came out, I think I'm going to go back and, and listen to them all the way through to to pick up on stuff that I've forgotten over the years. That's a good idea. Yeah. So if you ever get to it, I think you'll continue to enjoy it. Oh, yeah. I'm actively still listening to season two, early season two. But I I was using that one as like my running outside podcast and it got cold and I haven't been. So (laughs) I will. I like to listen to it during the daytime, but then I make the mistake of running in the woods and then getting creeped out. So I do that a lot. (laughs) And I swear there have been moments that have been like, in early season two, Kennedy is like traipsing through this empty house. And I was like in this really dark wooded area. And I was like, oh, no, this is so scary. I think I stopped a few times, like just to, you know, steal myself. But yeah, I totally understand. Don't run in the woods while listening to it. <laughs> no, it's a bad idea. But yeah, it's it's fun. I really enjoy it. I really like Kennedy. I really like Matthew. Yeah. And they're really good um, together. So yeah. Yeah. Highly recommend. Yeah. But you've been watching an HBO series that you really like. Yeah. This was actually, it was actually late last year that I watched this. So it's been a little while, but I really enjoyed it. It's gotten a lot of attention and acclaim. And it's called The Undoing. It's based on a novel called You Should Have Known by Jean Hamp Corlitz. It's written and produced by David E. Kelly, who also does Big Little Lies. And it's got very much that same tone. So it's very, it's very pretty. It's photographed really nicely. It's set in New York, unlike Big Little Lies, which has a lot of beautiful California scenery. So this is kind of the East Coast take on that. So it's a mystery and a thriller. And it's very, it's much more self-contained than Big Little Lies. It's only six episodes. And I really hope they don't make more because it's perfect as it is. Okay. So it stars Nicole Kidman, who is also in Big Little Lies, and Hugh Grant. And they're a married couple. Um, she is a psychologist and he is a pediatric oncologist. And they seem like they have this perfect marriage. They have a really cute apartment. They're very wealthy, but they're like New York wealthy. So their apartment is almost relatable. <laughs> like it's <laughs> smallish and 
old, but it's very charming. But she comes from money. Um, her dad is played by Donald Sutherland, and he clearly is this old money guy. So he, I think, has been sort of funding their lifestyle a little bit. And basically, Grace, Nicole Kidman's character, is on the board of her kid's private school. And through that, she meets this woman named Elena, played by Matilda DeAngelis. And she is an artist. And her kid is a scholarship student. So they're not as wealthy. And she has a new baby also that she brings to these meetings of the school volunteer group. And she makes people uncomfortable because she's like breastfeeding openly in the meetings. And she sort of creepily gives Grace like eye contact at weird moments. (laughs) And Grace just gets kind of a strange vibe from her. And it's kind of weird. And she doesn't get what her deal is. And she and her husband, Jonathan, are at like a fundraiser for the school one night. And then he gets called away on a medical emergency. And she goes home by herself. And when he comes home, he's very upset. And she kind of makes an assumption that he lost one of his cancer patients, his children who have cancer. And he doesn't really correct her. And and he makes it seem like that is correct. And he's just very, very distraught. But then the next day, he's gone. And she discovers he's supposed to be at a conference in Cleveland. And she discovers that he's actually left his phone at home. And Elena, the mysterious mother, is found murdered. So she can't reach her husband. She tries every hotel in Cleveland. She goes to his hospital. He's not told anyone that he even had a conference. And eventually, this is all in episode one, so it's not too spoilery. Yeah. But she discovers that he has not worked for his hospital in six months. So it all kind of unfolds from there. And she, I think it's called The Undoing because in a moment, in just a few moments, her entire life is just unmade, unzipped, like turned upside down, much like the world right now. (laughs) (laughs) Everything she thought was true is not. And she's, she's made to feel like she's going crazy a lot of the time. She has insomnia and she walks at night and she ends up getting photographed on streets near Elena's studio. And the police are starting to question her like, hey, you were out walking the night that this woman was murdered near where you're walking. And um, she doesn't have a really good answer for that. And it's it's very stressful on their kid who's a young teen. And yeah, it's I really binged a lot of this pretty quickly. I think I watched it in like three days because I watched like two a night, which is a lot for me for the same show Mm -hmm. and watched it late at night in the dead of winter, which was also (laughs) kind of spooky. But again, it's so beautifully shot. There's a lot of very tense close-ups. Frequently, Nicole Kidman is shot with having like really bloodshot eyes and they'll do a close zoom on her face and her eyes. And it and they're like almost jittering. And I don't know if there's something about how you can do that as an actor, but she's amazing. Like it's very (laughs) creepy. And you really get that sense of, well, did she do it? Did her husband do it? Did did her husband do it and she knows? Mm -hmm. Is she just freaking out because she suspects? Is he totally innocent? And she's just upset. And where is he? And it's this whole thing. So like there's an element of missing person, but also murder and also this paranoia and gaslighting. And it's just like, you just don't know what's what's true or not. Yeah. Some people have sort of criticized the ending. I actually liked the ending. But then again, I tend to like things where uh, I don't want to explain <laughs> what I like about it too yeah. much without being spoilery. <laughs> so I like things that end the way that this ended. Let's just leave it at that. Okay. So, it was very vague. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I know. 
So I think you would enjoy it. I think it's very, it's a very quick watch. It's mm-hmm. very bingeable. And again, the scenery is just beautiful. She wears some amazing outfits. I have to be shallow. <laughs> like there's something where it's set in wintertime also. And she has all these like really beautiful jewel toned coats. <laughs> and they like just sort of swing around her like long dresses. And I'm like, oh, she's so pretty. Like it's just really nice. And and even though Hugh Grant, you sort of suspect caginess and creepiness from him, he's a very good actor. And and it's nice to see him in something again. I haven't really seen anything with him in a long time. You know, I think he he's a little bit more talented than I think people give him credit for. So, um, and the young actor who plays their son, Noah Jupe, he plays Henry, their son. He's actually very good too. And there's even some things that seem creepy about him. Ooh. So no one is no one is without being under suspicion at some point in this. So interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've heard different things about it. Mm-hmm. You made me really interested in it when you brought it up last week, and you were mm-hmm. saying how much you liked it. So I did. I did give it a shot. I I watched two episodes in a row. Cool. I'm gonna finish it because it's only six episodes. Yeah. I do want to point out that one thing that struck me was you mentioned that Grace was kind of put off by Elena. Not put off, but just sort of a little bit weirded out by Elena. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the other mothers in the group really kind of pile on Elena in the background and yeah. Grace is the one to defend her. So even though yes. she gets kind of a weird vibe from her and like what's going on, mm-hmm. she steps up and is like, don't <laughs> guys don't. Yeah. Which I thought yeah. was a really interesting character point. Yeah. I don't think that it's all necessarily negative right. vibe. It's, it's a very complicated vibe and she's not even sure why she feels that way about her. I think she feels a certain strange kinship with her. Mm-hmm. And maybe even interest in her in different ways, but she also is put off by her, but not to the degree that her annoying mommy group friends are, yeah. who they're kind of terrible. <laughs> but yeah, and there is there is this dimension of she's the Latina, she is the scholarship mother, and there is definitely a class and race or ethnicity issue mm-hmm. at play there as well, where... You know, we have the the marginalized woman is the one who's murdered. Right. And the wealthy white woman survives. And, you know, there's not as much maybe allyship between different ethnicities of women as we would hope there is. And I think that's one point they're making with this show. Yeah. That's good to know, because one of my questions, one of the things that I tend to get a, a little frustrated about, which is stupid because... You always, if it's murder mystery, you have to have a person who's murdered. (laughs) (laughs) I get a little frustrated when, you know, because it's, the victim is generally a woman. Mm -hmm. And I really, really got attached to Elena. (laughs) Oh. Because I was like, oh, she's so weird and unusual and I love it. (laughs) Yeah. And then she got murdered. And I'm just wondering if, you know, because there are sort of two different approaches that shows or books can take. The victim Mm -hmm. is just the victim or the victim gets shown in flashbacks and different different things that round out their character and give her a little bit more depth. So mm-hmm. do you think the show takes that approach? Not as much as it could and or should, okay. but it does a little bit. Okay. And I think too that part of what this show is trying to say is that it is hard to bring the voice of the victim to the front in a murder case. And that murder has more victims than just the murdered, Mm -hmm. that there are people associated with her who suffer, her husband suffers, her children suffer greatly, and 
the people associated with anyone suspected of the murder are suffering. Right. So it's this, what is being undone is more than just the inciting incident. It's a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. So actions have consequences and they have consequences that, that ripple out and even in throughout the community of people like the children at the school they all go to are traumatized. Mm -hmm. Even if it's even if it's not a case of them knowing their classmate or knowing the classmate's mother, that's still upsetting. Like, because you immediately think you're a little kid, this could happen to me, my mom could get murdered. We all go to this nice school, but nobody is safe, things can weirdly happen. And yeah, so I think it's really, it's hard. And I'm trying to think of a show or movie or book that's done a good job of giving more and more voice to the victim, mm-hmm. but I'm coming up a little blank at the moment. Yeah, that's okay. I might read the book eventually. The book came out in 2014, but I think the title of that one, the book is interesting. You should have known. And I think they decided to change the title because I feel like that's a little too on the nose. Mm-hmm. And I like I like that what they renamed it. The other, oh, I didn't mention, and you may have noticed this or not, the opening sequence the credit sequence is incredibly creepy. It's yes. like a little a little red-haired girl <laughs> in the sunshine playing in the flowers and stuff and it's the song Dream a Little Dream of Me, but it's done really slow and it's sung by Nicole Kidman. Is it? Yes. Interesting. And I feel like it's supposed to be scenes of grace as a child oh. and showing this idyllic childhood and that she's singing it herself because it's like what she dreamed of growing up that she would have this beautiful, wonderful life. And she was so innocent. And boy, did that not go well, eventually. (laughs) So that's interesting that you brought that up. Because I generally don't take the time to skip the intro because it's just, you know, it's 20 or 30 seconds. And yeah, I don't care. But the second episode that I watched, I skipped it because I was like, I don't I don't like this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, and there's there's scenes of it where she then has like blood on her hands and stuff. Right. So it's it gets very sinister and seeing this little child cavorting around in flowers. But then there's something wrong. It's almost as if they're showing us dreams that adult Grace is having about her own childhood getting mixed up with the current murder mystery and how twisted and, and wrong her life has gone. Um, as she's gotten older. She's also, it's interesting that she's a therapist because she has, there's a few scenes where she's giving therapy to couples and stuff. And there's mirrors of, there's especially this same sex couple that one partner has cheated on the other. And she keeps kind of like, I think she personalizes that relationship as being something that is concerning to her, her own life. So yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. It is. I hope you like the rest of it. Me too. I hope I like it as much as you did. (laughs) (laughs) but we both recently watched another hbo thing and the uh, (laughs) hbo documentary the mystery of db cooper yeah kw is gonna be on an hbo kick for a while (laughs) yeah i am sorry but uh i watched it first and then and then you watched it Mm -hmm. i watched it on the night that it premiered because it was the anniversary of the incident I would yeah. like to point out, though, that I was the one who told you about it. <laughs> That's No, you did. You did. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I watched it a little bit later than you did. I actually watched it in two parts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I told you. I was watching it and I was texting KW about my theories and stuff. And then my mom came down. She wouldn't let me finish it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we had to turn on something else. So I finished it last week, I think. But it goes through four different suspects. 
but not just suspects. It talks to people who knew these people Mm -hmm. and all of them are convinced that their family member or friend was D.B. Cooper, which I thought was very, very interesting. Yeah. And the part that I liked better, though, was they talked to the pilots and some of the flight attendants. Yeah. Who were there on the flight, and that was really chilling. Yeah. Let's let's maybe back up just Sorry. a tiny bit and just shorthand that D.B. Cooper was a probably the perpetrator of the most famous air heist in U.S. history. And it happened in 1971 in November. And I always think of it around Thanksgiving because it was Thanksgiving (laughs) Eve, 1971. And I'm not so old that I was alive then, by the way. That is before (laughs) I was born. I don't even remember how I... I think I heard about this through... I don't remember when when I first heard about this case. I must have been like a late teen, early 20 something. And it's always... Ever since then, it just like, that is such a weird thing. This guy hijacked an airplane, demanded a bunch of money, and then parachuted out, was never caught. Mm -hmm. And they don't know his real name. They don't know who he was. FBI recently closed the investigation, but they had still been looking for him all this time. Yeah, which is just wild to me. Yeah. Yeah. According to the documentary, it's the only unsolved hijacking in the US. Yeah, yeah. So I liked the way they structured this documentary and made it very focused on talking to these people who have these theories that their loved one or, or friend was D.B. Cooper. And yeah, I've never actually seen footage of the, of the plane staff being interviewed. Mm-hmm. So, and everybody, I think, has this idea of, oh, this is kind of a romantic, like he was a, a Robin Hood figure or something. But you forget that he had a, he had a device with him that looked like a bomb. Yeah. And especially one flight attendant who they did interview had to sit next to him and pass messages to the flight crew and was basically like held hostage Mm -hmm. by this guy for hours. Yeah. Her name was Tina Mucklow. Yeah. And I I think she was, well, it's weird to say in a documentary that she was my favorite, but I found (laughs) it was her story the most interesting and scary because yeah, one of the things that they look into is that is the public response to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is very much like, oh, good for him. (laughs) Like he got away with $200,000. And I think, I can't remember exactly when I heard about this. But yeah, I think my approach was always like, oh, that's kind of not, (laughs) not fun. But like, (laughs) that's kind yeah, like kind of good for him. Like he did this cool thing and got some money from the government. (laughs) But then hearing the actual story changed my perspective. And yeah, I just kind of don't. It's it's a it's an uncomfortable sort of thing. Yeah. Like if he had robbed a bank and held all the customers and staff hostage and gotten away with it, which I know has happened a lot more than an air heist, people would not be celebrating that person as much, right? right? Cuz it seems a little bit more immediate and a little bit more like everyday people are are being put at risk, but these were everyday people who were being put directly at risk. But fortunately, no one was hurt and everyone got away and the the passengers on the flight actually were not aware of what was going on while it was happening. And at a certain point in the flight, they landed and released the passengers. But until they got off the plane, they actually did not really know what the issue was. Right. And I think that's good. It let them not experience as much trauma. But the flight crew was actually, you know, very traumatized by it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And there's a question of whether he, he survived or not. They found some of the money, but not all of it. And the rest of it's never been in circulation. There's a lot of questions about whether he could have survived that that jump. 
So yeah, it's either he died that very night or he did get away with it. I never really considered that he didn't survive. Really? Well, until this documentary. And then they were like, I think it was Oregon, right? Yeah, he he ended up jumping over. It was definitely over the Pacific Northwest that he jumped. So I don't know if they know precisely. Okay. And they're just showing scenes of the Pacific Northwest. And it's just great giant forest. And it's nighttime. And I was like, oh, you know what? He might not have survived that. (laughs) (laughs) Not only that, but it's it's cold. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, November. And it was raining that night. Yeah. And it was such bad visibility that there were planes trailing the plane, like FBI planes and stuff, and they could not actually see him jump out. It was that bad of visibility. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you want to go through the suspects or? Yeah. So this documentary puts forward, there's tons more suspects that you read about, but the three suspects they talk about in this documentary were Barbara Dayton who was a trans woman who was a pilot and she was a veteran, I believe. And a couple of her friends are convinced it was her. She's since died of natural causes many years later. But this husband and wife couple that were friends of hers are just absolutely 100% convinced that it was her. And that's one of the more maybe interesting theories Yeah, that one of the ways she was able to hide all these years is that she certainly didn't look like the the police sketch anymore right. because she transitioned and you know i mean she had a lot of the skills and stuff that would have been necessary yeah. to pull that off and certainly lived an adventurous sort of daredevil life what do you think of that one is that your favorite theory i think it is yeah that one sort of blew my mind that was the one where i think that made me text you and i was like what because <laughs> <laughs> it, it didn't ever occur to me but then after they explained it, like, yeah, she wouldn't look anything like the person that they were looking for. So mm-hmm. what a what an efficient way to blend in. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that theory, especially because she has all the skills that you would need to jump out of an airplane in the middle of the night yep. in November rain. <laughs> and the and the explanation for how she was able to like, I think they said she changed clothes into women's clothing once she had landed and then hitchhiked to the nearest town. And so they wouldn't have been thinking to look for a woman. Yeah. And, and so that it was even that she did that even that close to the event. So I think that's a cool theory. I think that would be a fun theory. I don't know if that's where I'm leaning. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like that couple was very naive in a way and that she was a very entertaining character and was like, <laughs> letting them think that because it's funny. So I don't know. That's I want to think she was a feisty lady and, and was you know, pulling their leg. <laughs> Another theory was this woman was interviewed about her uncle, whose name was L.D. Cooper. And she's convinced it was him based on conversations that her uncle and her father had when she was a little girl, and that her dad was convinced that he was that his brother was D.B. Cooper, and that this guy had disappeared around the time of the of the hijacking. I don't how do you feel about that theory? I mean, I thought it was really interesting, because one, I mean, kids hear a lot of talk that you don't think that they register. Yeah. So I can totally believe that. And they were a little sketch. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I can go hunting. <laughs> like, okay. Hunting, quote, in quotation marks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, she was nine or something, very young. Yeah. And how much, how much of that memory is accurate and reliable and how much is just 
oh, I heard this story when I was older. And like that kind of sounds like it could be related to these things I heard when I was younger. So like your brain just sort of meshes them together, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the people in the documentary said it the best. They don't think Marla, the niece, is like has bad intentions or is is lying. They they were just like she believes what she's telling you, and yeah, yeah I think I think she definitely believes it. But I just don't know if that's if it's true. Yeah, I think the uncle could have been involved in something else nefarious, and that the dad later in life blamed it on that. Mm in order to deflect whatever the real truth was. So like in crafting mystery novels, one of the things that we learned in grad school, I don't know if you were in this class with me. I think I was. Was you always need, like one of your prime suspects needs to be acting weird because they're trying to hide something else. Right. And so they end up looking guilty, but it doesn't mean they're guilty of the main crime, which is another element of the undoing that people should keep in mind when they watch that. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes people are just sketched for other reasons. That's very true. Yeah. So yeah, I I believe I I agree with you. I think she thinks what she thinks is true, but I don't know that he's the most viable suspect. Yeah, and then there is Richard McCoy, who got arrested later for doing a copycat hijacking, mm-hmm. and he escaped from prison and then got shot by cops. So he's dead. Yikes! Yeah. So I think all of these people are dead, right, or missing? Yeah. There, yeah, everybody's either dead. L.D. Cooper is just missing. Yeah. There was also Joe Weber, this woman who thinks her late husband, Dwayne Weber, was D.B. Cooper because he supposedly admitted on his deathbed. And he did a lot of things over the years in her presence that she found, in retrospect, very suspicious, like taking her on a trip of the Pacific Northwest and silently showing her various places that she later figured out were sort of D.B. Cooper important sites Mm. and she is firmly convinced that one of the mornings of that trip he had gone out to get rid of some of the money because shortly thereafter that's when some of the money actually was recovered so i don't i think she kind of like marla cooper really believes what she thinks is true and i don't think she has bad intentions but Dwayne weber was a very sketch dude too (laughs) (laughs) and seemed like a bit of a fabulous and and raconteur and a weird dude who I would not be surprised if he had done some illegal stuff but I don't know yeah Yeah. I think it would be very hard for anyone to disbelieve your spouse when they were like oh Mm -hmm. yeah I I was D.B. Cooper (laughs) yeah yeah when little things like that slot into place so Mm -hmm. yeah I don't I think hers was the least convincing for me yeah but she totally believes it and I think that's one of the one of the things that really struck me about this, because everyone believes their theory to the core. Yep. And obviously, only one of them can be right, if any of them is right. Yeah. So just the idea that we can walk around with an absolute truth in our hearts, mm-hmm. and it could turn out to be not true, is really scary for me. <laughs> well, that's why I wrote my novel because these kinds of mysteries make me upset because I need to know. And I feel like if somebody could just go back in time and observe (laughs) them, they would know. And I even touch on this in in that book. So ultimately, and I think this film is really a good watch. It's very, it's very beautifully shot. The interviews are really sensitively done. And I think the filmmakers were just really interested in this story. Mm -hmm. 
And it shows a little time capsule of the early 70s and some of the economic problems and the fact that bank robberies and skyjackings were common then because especially in that region, the economy was just terrible. And especially the airline industry was suffering quite a bit. The flight that this happened on, the airline doesn't even exist anymore. Oh, geez. So I think there's a lot of theories that it was somebody who was under severe economic distress to do this. But kind of maybe getting boiling this down to who do you really think was the very most viable suspect? Do you still want to stick with Barbara Dayton? Um, Probably. I like the Barbara Dayton story because it's to me, it's the most interesting, but probably the most likely of the four for me is Richard McCoy. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's where I fall to. Although I recently read some some theories online that it could not have been him because he was a Mormon and didn't smoke or drink. And D.B. Cooper was drinking and smoking throughout the flight. Interesting. But he looks so much like the drawing. And I can't get past the fact that he successfully pulled off a later skyjacking that was done very similarly. So I don't know that I think he's still my top contender because also like, who knows how closely Tino was watching him, whether he really was drinking and smoking mm-hmm. and if that was deliberately a means of trying to throw people off the scent. Right. And also his friend saying, you're a strict Mormon. Clearly you don't do these things. Doesn't mean he doesn't do them. You know? yeah. yeah. Also, <laughs> not drinking or smoking, excluding him from a plane hijacking. Yeah. It's just like, okay, you're... Your friend didn't do the plane hijacking because they don't drink or smoke. Not because, like, they're a good person who would never do a plane hijacking. Like, <laughs> Right, right. Like, like, okay, I'm sure there's stuff in Mormon doctrine that's like, don't commit robbery. <laughs> yeah. like, so if he's already willing to and, and is on record and, and convicted of doing another skyjacking, like, he was willing to break some serious rules right. in yeah. life. So drinking and smoking once you know is maybe he was just so tense that he was like i'll just do this this once i'm gonna do a lot of bad things this once (laughs) just pack it all in so yeah i really think he's one of the one of the biggest the problem the interesting thing is there's so much evidence that's been lost because Mm -hmm. just through the years and stuff and and not thinking certain things needed to be tested they saved all his cigarette butts for a long time but then pretty much right before they could really do DNA, they threw them away. And if they had yeah. saved them for just like maybe five more years, they could have done DNA on them. They could have, yeah. And that's so frustrating. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of interesting theories. I do think that oh, Robert Rackstraw is another common suspect. He was a retired pilot and stuff. And so I kind of think he might have been a viable candidate. But those are those are kind of the main ones that I think are really logical of the of the names that get floated publicly. Yeah. After this documentary, I think my preferred theory that just makes the most sense and is the most simple to me is that he died in, really? in the jump. Yeah. Okay. And so we may never know who he was. And that's the really frustrating thing for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Unsolved Mysteries sometimes can still be solved. So there's this feeling of like, okay, it's not solved now, but it can be eventually. But this is so old and so many people have died and the evidence. Yeah, that there's just, it, there doesn't feel like there's even the possibility of solving this one anymore. So yeah, that's why we need to invent time travel. <gasps> that's right. So we can figure it out. <laughs> well, if if you dear listener have a theory or if your uncle or grandfather was D.B. <laughs> Cooper, 
you should tweet that to us and let us know because we'd love to have some more theories. Yes, please do. <laughs> well, next week we'll be talking about the TV series Search Party, the Dragon Age universe, and comfort movies and shows. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Gessner. And you can find me on Twitter at KW Taylor Writer. And you can find us together on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast. If you want to email us, you can do that at positivelypopculture at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy and safe, and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. Bye.